Back in 2017, I recorded an episode with Michelle Murphy, and Michelle was wrongfully convicted of the murder of her baby, Trevor, a 15-week-old boy. She was egregiously framed and served 20 years to the day in prison of a life sentence. Upon her release, the judge said through tears that in his four decades on the bench, it was the worst miscarriage of justice he'd ever seen. She's been fully exonerated, and she is an extraordinary person who is full of life, very brilliant, and is working at the bail fund in Oklahoma, helping to free other women from sentences they don't deserve and getting them back home with their families where they belong. Sad news is that in 2018, March of 2018, she lost a lawsuit that she filed against the city of Tulsa for violating her civil rights. There are ongoing developments and hopefully this wrong will be eventually righted, but it's shocking to say that now, almost five years since her release, she has gotten nothing from the state of Oklahoma or anyone else for her 20 years of wrongful incarceration. Her daughter, from whom she was taken at the age of 17 when this tragedy happened, she was uh, taken directly to interrogation. She was interrogated for nine hours without an attorney, without a parent. It was an illegal interrogation. And from that interrogation, she was taken to jail and never saw her daughter again. The good news is that in 2018, in May, she was reunited with her daughter. And I was there, and it was an unbelievably emotional scene. Um, Her daughter, now 25, has has a daughter of her own. And so there's still a lot of healing to be done, but Michelle is one of the strongest and bravest people I've ever known, and you have to hear her story to believe it. Michelle Murphy, wrongful conviction. Shout out to Michelle. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective. I was naive enough to believe that I would be able to just present all of my proof of actual innocence, that they would investigate adequately, and so that I wouldn't be going to prison because I was a good person, I hadn't done anything wrong. In the back of your mind, you say, well, when we go to a hearing or we go to court, the truth will come out. The prosecution from day one knew I was innocent and let false testimony go uncorrected from the lower courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. You have someone with a badge with ultimate and, and really, in that moment, unchecked authority. Don't presume that people are guilty when you see them on TV, because it may just be a dirty DA that is trying to rise upward. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. I'm actually almost at a loss for words already today because one of my favorite humans is here in the studio with us. Michelle Murphy, the only female exoneree in the history of Oklahoma. 20 years in prison for a crime she didn't commit. On September 12, 1994, Murphy's 15-week-old son, Travis, was found dead. His throat slit. One year later, Murphy was found guilty of murder, received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. This morning, a Tulsa County judge dismissed Michelle Murphy's conviction. Prosecutors asked for the conviction to be vacated because of new evidence they just became aware of. It involves DNA evidence they say wasn't available 20 years ago. Murphy's attorneys, however, say the district attorney's office always had the evidence, and it was Tim Harris himself who implied to jurors 20 years ago that blood at the crime scene belonged to Murphy. After two decades in prison, including four years of legal work, Murphy, now 37, gets a second chance at life. Michelle, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's good that you're here. And with Michelle is her attorney, Shannon McMurray, and is working on her civil suit. So, Shannon, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. So, Michelle, your case is really, it's just beyond. I mean, your case is so extreme that the judge in your original hearing said that in his more than four decades on the bench, it was the most terrible miscarriage of justice he'd ever seen. But let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Tulsa. Yes, that's correct. And what was your upbringing like? You had a difficult childhood, did you not? Yes, I did. I was brought up in the poverty-stricken projects and welfare. I was in and out of foster homes. I went through pretty much every form of abuse you can think of as a child. And then you ended up at the age of 17 with two kids, right? Yeah. Which may not be as unusual in Oklahoma, but 
certainly in many parts of America, people would be like, wow, that's, you know, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. And you had a difficult relationship with the, the father of your children as well. Right. It was a dysfunctional relationship, but I had kicked him out and I was raising my kids on my own because that's all I wanted was kids of my own to raise. I pretty much brought up my sisters and my brothers, so I wanted to get out there and have my own. <laughs> so I started a little early. You raised your sisters and your brothers as well, so you were you had experience at this. Right. Right. Although at 17, how much experience can you really have? You'd been through some crazy stuff already, mm-hmm. as you said, every kind of abuse and everything else. So I guess you were sort of prepared. You I know. thought I knew it all, <laughs> but I was 17. What 17-year-old doesn't think that they know everything and they're ready to take on the world? All I ever wanted was my own kids, and I was ready to make it happen then. I did. So now we fast forward to that fateful night. We're talking about September 12th, 1994, right? Yeah. When you went to sleep, probably more or less like any other night, you had your two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, right? Right. And your baby son, Travis. Yes. Can you just walk us through what happened that night? Because it's, you know, it's really the beginning of what is going to be an unbelievable saga um well after i left visiting a friend of mine i went home i fed michelle my daughter and i fed travis and gave him his little bath and everything else prepared him for sleep and he went to sleep and i couldn't sleep for some reason so i stayed up and i was going through baseball cards that i was trying to save for him for his future because i just wanted him to have something that could possibly be a collectible one day or something, you know? And I was making a list of them and stuff until I finally was able to go to sleep. And I can't even remember what time it was that I went to sleep. And when I woke up, my um, my lights were on, my head was hurting, and, and I noticed my son was, wasn't where he was when I laid him down to sleep. You were sleeping with the kids, right? At the time, my AC from upstairs had fallen out the window. And so at that time, we were all just sleeping downstairs where it would be cooler. And we were sleeping on a couch. All three of us had a huge L-shaped couch. And so we were all in different areas on it asleep. And so the first thing you would have noticed when you woke up is that your son was missing. I mean, because right. I mean, he would have been right in your immediate vicinity. He would have been in your eyesight as soon as you woke up. So he was gone. Right. My first instinct is to look and make sure that they're there and they're asleep and they're okay because I woke up to try to go use the restroom. Right. And, and there's nowhere and, he could have gone. He was only 15 weeks old. It's not like he walked right. somewhere. And I, I just, I started panicking because I was like, where's, where's my baby, you know? My front door was open, and um, my closest friends lived right behind me at that time. So I went to go out the back door, and that's when I found Travis. He was in the kitchen? Yeah, in a pool of his own blood. It's the ultimate nightmare of anybody who's ever had a child. So what did you do? I... I freaked out. I um, 
I went to my friends to get help. And um, it's the last time I got to see my daughter. And it was the last time I felt complete having my kids, you know. Um, after I went to my friends and they seen what had happened with Travis, they went and they called the police. And then they came out and um, I was in a police car. I remember sitting there and people just kept coming up to the car asking me what was going on or the stuff. And um, eventually they took me to the police station where an officer of the law, if you could call him that, interrogated me. It wasn't so much an interrogation. It was more like um, a browbeating. Like he told me I had done this and this is what I did and how I did it and why I did this. And just, and I, all I could say was I didn't do it. There's so many things wrong with this story, even just this beginning part of the story, because it's illegal in Oklahoma for a 17-year-old, you were a minor, to be interrogated right. without an adult in the room, a guardian or a, or an attorney, right? But they that didn't stop at them. That, at that time in Oklahoma, it was not proper. It's legal today. They've changed the law. But what they did to Michelle is is nothing less than despicable. But how? Why? Why would they do this? And here you were just an innocent child. I mean, you're still a child. Yeah. And they interrogated you for seven fucking hours. And that is a long, long time, particularly when you are in such a fragile state, right? And you're, you're 17, you have an eighth grade education, you're totally overmatched. You've apparently been hit in the head, right? Because you right. wake up with this horrible headache. And yet they really didn't manage to extract the confession from you. Seven hours, and they finally get you to say, they say you said something that was sort of like, you know, well, maybe I could have accidentally dropped a knife. Poor because kid that's was... what he had guided me to say. The investigator what? was guiding me in things that I needed to say. This is how I did it. And I was more like asking him a question as to, instead of making a statement, I was asking him if that's what he wanted to hear because... Because I wanted to see my daughter. I wanted to make sure my daughter was okay. I wanted to hold my daughter. He made false promises. Just say it was an accident. Just say this, and you'll get to go home, and you'll get to see your daughter. We'll get you counseling. We'll get you therapy. You just need to say it this way. When he didn't like what Michelle said, he would start the recording over again. Michael Lee? William. William was very likely the person who decapitated Travis and left him dead in Michelle's kitchen. There was no knife, no weapon ever found, absolutely no blood evidence on Michelle. They never luminoled. There were five separate sets of fingerprints that they never tested. They didn't test the screen door for fingerprints. They didn't test a chair that was seemed like blocking the front screen door and it had blood on it. There was an open back window that they've later admitted Michael William could have crawled through. There's so many inconsistencies between his interviews and his testimony at preliminary hearing. And then after preliminary hearing, he was found hung 
quite suspiciously, and dead. So the only person who really knows the truth is dead after he testified. And what the preliminary hearing judge pulled the prosecutor and the defense attorney in after the preliminary hearing and said, you need to seriously consider him as the suspect. Well, I was reading about this, Shannon, and I found it absolutely extraordinary that the judge at your preliminary hearing was Judge Messler. And in an interview, he called this case, and I'm quoting, the biggest miscarriage of justice, unquote, that he had ever been connected to. And he was holding back tears when he said it. I mean, what does yeah. that tell you about, I mean, for a judge who'd been on the bench for over four decades to say something like that, holding back tears, this is where it really gets me. And I've never heard this before. At one point during this preliminary hearing, which is when this should have stopped, he actually called the attorneys to his chambers to ask if the quote-unquote witness, who we now know was almost certainly the perpetrator, the murderer, William Michael Lee, if he had an attorney. And when the prosecutor asked why, Judge Messler responded, and I'm quoting, because that's the murderer of this baby, and everybody in the courtroom knows it except you, apparently. Uh, Wow. You know, like, you would hope that at that point, somebody would have said, okay, we're done. That's enough. We can stop right. now. We can shift our focus. You sit there and go, wait, wait a minute. What, like, stop. Like, something, just stop, right? I mean, you have that feeling like this has to, this can't be, right? It can't be that the judge said something so strong and so profound and yet everybody felt fine just going ahead with this. Let's not call it a prosecution. Let's call it a persecution, right? Correct. Because, And that's really what was happening. It wasn't an interrogation that Michelle endured. It was like a witch hunt, basically. And it's so nuts because this kid, who was another neighbor, right, and who had made unwanted sexual advances towards you, right? Right. And it gets worse and worse as this unravels because of the fact that there was evidence that was not allowed in court because the kid self-asphyxiated and hung himself between the time of your arrest and the time of the trial. It's all just totally bizarre. But the testimony was not allowed that was going to be presented that he had decapitated a cat, that he had shown up at school the day of the murder, joyful and talking about how he had you know, exacted some revenge on you. And other details. How that bitch is going to pay. Yeah, right. So, so I mean, that would have been the end of the trial right there, right? It would have been like, oh, well, I mean, any jury, I don't care. Any jury is going to hear that stuff. And there was more. There was a psychologist who had said that he was 10 years old. He had examined him and that he had shown when he feels rejected, that he had violent tendencies. I mean, this is textbook, right? That's right. exactly what happened. He had this rejection, and obviously he was pretty twisted considering the way he died, right? Self-asphyxiation is uh, is a bizarre thing at any age, but the fact that he was doing that when he was 14 or 15 when he died is really, um, it takes it to a whole nother level. So there's just so many bad actors in this particular play. So back to this crazy judicial nightmare of yours, right? So They decide to proceed, even though everybody knows that you're innocent, and they just went ahead anyway, which is shocking. So what happens next? Now you're in jail awaiting trial, right? They didn't let you see your baby. They lied to you in the interrogation room. You're in jail. I was 
put in a cell by myself because I was 17 with a barrier in front of my door until I turned 18. Even though I was being charged as an adult, I was still treated as a juvenile. And I didn't get out. I didn't get out but for an hour a day after everybody else was locked down and have access to the phones, the shower, what have you. And it was only for an hour at a time. You're in solitary confinement. Yeah, that's correct. Right. No, nobody bothered to think that she need a psychologist, any sort of counseling after what you'd been through. I mean, okay, I can't, uh, I can't even process that. And meanwhile, are you even aware of what's going on with your daughter at this point? Has anybody told you? I couldn't get any answers from anybody. Did you have parents that you could talk to or anybody My mother, but she didn't know either. Well, they just denied her access as well because of things that had happened to me in her care as a child. They kept her out of the loop, too. Was she allowed They to- denied my entire family. Was anyone visiting you? I got a few visits from family, but they were in the dark just as much as I was. And we find out later that your daughter was adopted by close friends of the prosecutor, right? Correct. Which, again, just adds a layer to this that is off the fucking wall. I mean, it's just like, I mean, it just doesn't make any logical sense. And then you go to trial. You you turned 18 in prison, right? The worst 18th birthday ever. Spent some of the best birthdays, or supposed to be the best birthdays, in jail or prison. And back then, you know, I've been a lawyer now 20-some years, but I was an intern for the public defender's office and would have to go to the adult detention center. And these women and men were either in cages or in a in a bunker, so to speak, lying on top of each other, roaches, rats, my it was despicable. And this smell was Ratchet. unfathomable. I mean, it I would throw up in my mouth every time I, I it was just awful. But you had to go out there and as a public defender intern or lawyer, we would go out there just to check on their well-being, and we would report (laughs) the conditions, and it it never changed. I could not even imagine having to endure that, even if I did do something wrong, but knowing I didn't do anything and being in that, just it just... And this is the jail. It's unspeakable. That's where Michelle was held. Right, prior to the trial. The adult, yes. It was horrible. And that's something that is worth understanding. Jails by and large, are worse than prisons for some of the reasons that you're talking about. Correct. There's no recreation. Many people are held, as Michelle was, in their cell for 23 hours a day. The lights don't go off. They're never cleaned. They're literally never breeding cleaned. grounds for disease, violence, rape, because there's so much pressure built up because there's nothing to do except for sit there. You've got people in there who are innocent, like Michelle, you got people in there who are accused of crimes but can't post bail, but they may or may not be innocent. We have no idea. And then we have them mixed in with violent criminals. It sounds like a more benign word than prison, and it's important for people to understand that it's it's the farthest thing from it. Well, and then also, especially whenever the media crucifies you and makes you out to be one of the most horrific monsters there is, and you're charged with any form of a child crime, and they broadcast it, these people, these women or men in jail, they see that. They watch the news. You get taunted. You just get fucked with really bad in there. And it's 24 hours. You get fucked with 
excuse my language, messed with in there. And especially for, well, the crime that I was charged with and the, the goriness, the, the horror of it. And what they would say on the news and stuff, people will take that and then they, they twist it and make it even worse, as if you can make it any worse. But being in there and you're innocent of this as well, and you don't know, like me, I didn't know where my daughter was and just, I'm going through this and then I'm having people yelling through the vents, hollering at me all the time, calling me a baby killer. Um... I, I got threats all the time. They were going to make sure my food had something in it. They were going to do the same thing to me that I supposedly done to my child. I mean, you learn to just kind of try to block it out as much as you can. But you can't block it all out. And it's 24 hours a day. I can't imagine how... It's just bad and worse, and it's a miracle that you survived that ordeal because you're right. It, it can't be any worse than that, to be in there accused of what you were accused of, having lost your child, being deprived of seeing... I mean, it's like it's literally the ultimate nightmare, and yet you lived through it, and here you are today, which is... That's a miracle. So then there's the trial, and you're finally going to trial. Did you believe that things were going to work out and that finally somebody would tell the truth and you would be able to go home? I knew that I was innocent. And I believed that once they heard all this BS that they had made up about me and everything else, that somebody was going to see what I knew. And they they would let me go home, you know? But they were so narrow-minded and blinded by what the prosecutor portrayed. And I got a life without parole sentence. And well, the lawyer prison. was asleep. As a defense attorney, and I've done it my entire career, I know that we as attorneys are the only thing that can stop the mountain of the United States uh, and the government. We're the, we're the stopgap, and we have to. If you can't get in there and fight like hell, then get the hell out of the courtroom. I see it day in and day out, lawyers that aren't prepared, but they weren't just not prepared. It's almost like they just went with the prosecution and whatever their theory of the case was, they did not control anything in that courtroom or anything leading up into the courtroom, and they didn't do what they're supposed to do. And so that was a part of the problem as well. Is a problem that we see all too frequently is that people are not adequately represented by their defenders, and you're certainly a textbook case of that as well. I mean, this was a case where even though there was prosecutorial misconduct, gross prosecutorial misconduct, gross, including lies about the blood evidence, which had they told the truth would have exonerated you instantly because your blood type didn't match the blood that was found at the crime scene. And, of course, right. it even goes further. There was blood, presumably from the perpetrator, at the crime scene. And going it didn't, out the front door. And going out the front door. I mean, this one comes with instructions. I mean, it was on the chair as well that was propped up against the outside of my front door to where I couldn't go out the front door if I had went out the front door. So I'd have to have gone out the back. On top of everything else, you have no blood on you, right? And so... Any investigator right out of school 
would go, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. You can't commit a violent, terrible stabbing with blood everywhere, but you don't get any blood on you, right? And right. so immediately there should have been like, she didn't do it. Let's take care of her, right? She's just been through the most traumatic experience that anyone can go through. Let's get her some help. Let's make sure her daughter's okay. That would have been the appropriate reaction. And let's go find who did this. You would think that that would be the proper way to do things. Well, that is the proper way to do things, but that's not what they did, right? I I mean, in a civilized society, there's no question that that's what should have been done. They had their sights set on you, and it's uh, it's hard. I was an easier target for them. Yeah, right. Except for not really, though, when you think about it, because they had all evidence that they needed to I mean they had blood evidence and everything I mean they knew that um, okay I'm gonna get too angry I'm Elia Connie and this is family therapy my best hopes I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So back to where we left off. At trial, you needed a dream team. You needed a superstar attorney, and you got someone who was, let's say, borderline incompetent, and that may be being kind. At the same time, not only was the prosecution on this crazy mission to convict you at all costs, but they also broke so many different rules, right? The misconduct in this case is extreme, including, I think it was Harris was the prosecutor, right? Mm -hmm. He lied about the evidence. Not only did they withhold the exculpatory evidence, which is a Brady violation, they lied about the actual evidence. They at least suggested to the jury that the blood that was found at the crime scene could have been or was probably yours, right? right? which they knew was 100% untrue. Not mine, right. Yeah, they knew it was not yours, but they led the jury to believe that it was. And that's hard when you're in the jury seat, right? You're one of these jurors and you're sitting there and you've been hit with all this publicity around your case and everything else. And, you know, you're feeling, I'm sure, very stressed out because it was a baby killed. They even showed the jurors an autopsy of my son. Yeah, so that's horrific too. So they, I can only imagine what it was like for them to sit there and see that. I, I mean, I had to just listen to it. I was forced to. I didn't want to see it. You know, I already had enough horrors, but I had to sit in there and I could hear the video playing and all the things that they were doing. So I can only imagine that that made a big impact on the jurors too and they wanted somebody to pay for it and I get that I want somebody to pay for it too but not me I didn't do it so there had been this circus of a trial and ultimately the jury goes out you were probably even as a as a 17 18 year old girl with a an eighth grade education you were probably aware that your your own attorney wasn't doing such a great job Right. But did you think that they were going to come back and, and actually find you guilty? I never lost hope. And I was just, I was praying that they would see the truth and that they would know I couldn't do something like that. But it was wrong. So that moment, Michelle, now you've been through everything a human being can endure from the time you were a child. And, and what was that moment like? I can't forget it. There's a lot of things I wish I could forget. When the jurors come back in and I was in there, I was just holding on to my faith and that that they were going to know 
there is no way that I could do that. There's too many holes in what they tried to portray and that they would see through that. And I kept holding on to the fact that I knew I was innocent and that I was hoping that they were, they weren't too blind to see that I was innocent because it was clear I was wrong because they found me guilty and gave me a life without parole sentence. I remember my grandfather and my uncle in the courtroom and I had never seen them cry and they both broke down and cried. I remember my sister break down and she was screaming at the juries telling them that how could they do it that they were wrong. And I remember seeing my mom over there and she was breaking down crying as well. Well, everybody that was there, my family-wise, were all broke down and crying because they all believed I was going to come home. And uh, I didn't know what the sentence was that they had given me until I was able to talk to my mom later. And I asked her, I said, what was the sentence they gave me? All I heard was guilty and life. Everything else was just kind of like blacked out. I, I just, I couldn't believe it, that they had found me guilty. And just hearing them say that, it was like I lost my heart. It was ripped out again. What was left of it, anyhow. And then seeing my family break down like that, it was, it was hard. And then they took me back to the county jail and put me in my room. Um. Yeah, I can't believe even now that they convicted you. It's it's something that all of us as Americans and human beings should be ashamed of, and I am. So you're sentenced to life in prison, and you had a lot of life left to live when you're 18 years old, and you end up going to prison. I want to get to how you managed to persevere and find the strength to fight for yourself when you could have so easily given up. I mean, I think most people in your situation would have given up. There are times that I wanted to give up, but I couldn't. I just couldn't because I have a daughter, and now I know I have a granddaughter too. And to hell with everybody else, I had to prove to her that I didn't do this. And in order for that, I had to get my innocence proven. And that's what kept me going through the 20 years. And even now is what keeps me going is one day having the possibility of letting her know the facts, not what she's been led to believe and being a part of our life. The fact that you still now, two years after being... Three. three years after being fully exonerated and um, found actual innocent found actual innocent and the ruling was with prejudice so that means they can't retry you the idea that you still haven't been able to reestablish your relationship with her is, is something that troubles me a lot but I'm hopeful I mean I think that ultimately you will and hopefully there'll be a happy ending to this and, and I believe one day she will come around and she'll let me be a part of her life it is going to happen because it, it has to.
you know, there's another couple of twists and turns in this, right? Because you ended up serving 20 years, but halfway through that, there was light. There was a break in the case. Yeah. Before my mom passed away, my mother had written The Innocence Project. She wrote a lot of people because she wanted to get me and my dream team, my own dream team, is what she called it. They had taken my case on it, and they had requested all this exculpatory evidence to be turned over to them to be ran and tested. And come to find out now, not all that evidence was provided to them. They supposedly couldn't find some, or it didn't exist anymore, or whatever. Right, the games continued. There were three envelopes at one point that were sent in the mail, and two of them were empty, right? Which is really like, and let's just reflect on just that alone. It's so nuts, right? Like, really? Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. But it's not funny. It sounds sounds ridiculous now, but it's not funny. It's It's a very real... They were still trying to cover their asses. Yeah. So the Innocence Project took your case, which is mm-hmm. the blessing of blessings when you're stuck in that nightmare, right? And right. the Innocence Project takes your case, but in 2000, this is 2005? Mm, I believe it was before that. I think it was 2004. I, I'm not sure on the timeline, but whenever they ran the test on what they were provided with, there was nothing that they could do because it was all just Travis's blood. There was none of the perpetrators. It was just Travis's blood that was provided to them. So they had said that there was nothing that they could do. They did what they could do. So it kind of lost hope for a, a moment, in a sense. But at the same time, I was like, I'm not giving up. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. Because I didn't have money. I was in prison. I'd already lost my parents... I lost a lot of people, and finances don't exist really in prison. You can't make a living in there. So I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew it was going to happen one day. You didn't give up, and the Innocence Project didn't give up either. Well, they weren't able to assist with what was provided to them, and they had done what they did. So eventually, a friend of mine had found my attorneys that helped prove my innocence, and my sister and um, her guy at the time, he was a doctor, he paid for my attorneys, and the Innocence Project got involved with them on proving my innocence because they were able to locate the evidence that was held back from the Innocence Project the first time to be ran and tested again. And those lawyers, the ones that came to your rescue at this time, it's worth giving them a shout-out yeah. here, right? That's I, I am grateful for them bringing me home and doing the work that they did to prove my innocence. And that was Richard and Sharice O'Carroll, right? Correct. So you finally got a team on your side that was up to the task, right? Right. And then the Innocence Project got reinvolved because the evidence was found, right? Right. Which existed all along. But with this group of very sinister people had successfully hidden for as long as they had. It was finally found. And I believe it took Sharice and some interns going in themselves and looking through the evidence themselves in order to get it and have it tested. Right. But see, the thing is, is that it had already been tested before my trial. Tim Harris had already had it tested 
he knew. Right, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations had tested the evidence and had provided it to the prosecutor, which was Harris, but he just chose to ignore it. He chose to hide it and ignore it and then lie about it and do basically everything he had to do in order to turn your life into more of a living hell than it already was. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them myself as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> 
that you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ultimately, you come back to court with appropriate representation, strong representation, actually. Let's call it what it is. Yeah. And you finally get justice. What was that like? It was like a huge weight of the world just lifted off of me. And it was a major relief. But at the same time, it was like it, it had a moment of sadness because my parents couldn't be there. Especially my mom. My dad wasn't really a part of my life, but my mom couldn't be there to experience it with me. Or my daughter. Who was there that day, Michelle, with you besides Richard and Cherise? Um, I had some family in the courtroom that day. I believe my baby sister was there with her husband. And the doctor was there, Dr. Fizell, who paid Cherise and Richard O'Carroll to take my case on. Well, that's, uh, I mean, that's pretty uh, heroic of him. So finally, some good people have come to your aid rescue. It's bittersweet because obviously mm-hmm. your parents weren't there to see their, yeah. their baby be exonerated. But it was, just, it was awesome to be able to finally, the court system acknowledges that I am innocent. And to all the people that had prosecuted me and even in prison, those that beat me down and talked horribly about me and made my life hell in there. To all those people that had misjudged me and it was just like, I told you, I was innocent. What did the judge say? He was relieved. He looked straight at me and he said, Michelle Law Murphy, you are actually innocent. And uh, he said that three times and said that we were dismissed. And Did anybody apologize? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Well, not that it would have really changed anything, but it might have been a nice gesture, I mean, for Christ's sakes. Yeah. I would just add, and not only has nobody apologized to Michelle from law enforcement, that it's their intent to attempt to try and retry her in her civil suit for the murder of Travis in order to convince the jury that Michelle should not receive money damages for the 20 years she spent in prison, innocent. So I think that that's important for everyone to know. The nightmare persists. She can never be convicted or go to prison or jail, but it is their attempt in the civil trial, which is going to be in April, to put her on trial for killing Travis and to try to get this confession before the jury. And so, no, nobody's apologized to her. Mm, Kind of the opposite. They still want to try to prosecute me, in a sense. They don't want to admit that they were wrong, and they don't want to compensate. There's not enough money in the world that could ever replace what was taken from me. I would rather go penniless and have my kids than have all the money in the world. And that's something I want to talk about a little bit too, Michelle, because 
it's important for people to understand the struggle that happens after you get out. I think people see on the news the the coverage on the courthouse steps. And there's cameras and there's hugging and there's crying and there's cheering and there's everything. But then you walk out into a world that doesn't really want you. You've got a, a resume that's got a 20-year hole in it. And you haven't had a chance to develop skills when everybody else has been out building their career or their family or their... And you get nothing. Here we are three years later, and now you have to still wait until April to go and fight for compensation that should be provided to you, in my opinion, immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that you can start rebuilding your life. I'm grateful to be free and living in on this side of the world. But it's so hard to survive sometimes out here because we have to play catch up. Me, for instance, I have no computer skills. I'm learning them now. I had never had a job. I was 17 years old. I had never drove a car a day in my life. I never had a house of my own. You know, I had never experienced so much that most people have experienced in their life or the beginning of their life, you know. So it's a struggle. And the panic attacks, the anxiety of trying to catch up, which we probably never catch up to the rest of the world, but I'd like to know some things, you know? Yeah, I mean, the PTSD has got to be profound. It's just, like I said, another sentence almost, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Form of another prison, in a sense. But, you know, you're... Even with physical problems related to your time you spent in prison and everything else, you're still here, right? I'm still a fighter and a survivor. Yeah, and we've got your back. And you're taking classes now with an organization called Goodwill, is that right? Yeah, Goodwill Tulsa Works. The thing is, a lot of people out there don't realize what all is available. All they know is the donation sites and the stores that they have. But they don't realize that there's classes that are available to them. For me, I didn't have any computer skills, didn't know how to do Microsoft Word, PowerPoint, and Excel, and all this stuff, and I'm learning that extremely quickly, and I'm loving it. I know how to do a PowerPoint. I know how to do a spreadsheet now. I'm a very quick learner, and they've taught me how to do resume, which I don't have much of a resume, but I know how to do one. I know how to carry myself in an interview. I I know more about this process that it takes to get a job now. But as soon as I complete this class, I am going to start A-plus certification, which does hard drives and the motherboards and stuff like that, building computers. And I'm going to take forklifting classes as well. And then in January, they're supposed to be starting an OSHA program, so I can be OSHA certified as well. Wow, that's a lot. It's really great. It's great. And and it's important because people ask me, what can I do to help? So programs like this Goodwill program do, you know, there's not enough of them. Right. People could start one. You could learn more about it. Check out the Goodwill program. Tutor, mentor, you know, help provide equipment or or clothes. There's a million things you can do. And we're going to help. It just takes somebody to believe in us sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I'm always hungry for knowledge. I want to learn everything. It's amazing. There's so many great stories of exonerees coming out and, and succeeding and triumphing. 
if there's anything else you can think of that you could recommend for people to do who are going to hear this and they're going to say, I want to do something to help, what, what would you recommend people do? I would like to see more programs that are going to help, especially exonerees. There are some programs that are available to people coming out of prison that are being released from their time. Reentry programs. Well, when us exonerees, we come out, we don't meet their criteria because we're not being released. We've been exonerated for a crime we did not commit. And we can't get into those programs because their focus is to help those coming out of prison for serving a time and for a crime that they did commit. Yeah, we have in this country, we have various reentry programs and also, you know, parole probation officers. Mm -hmm. I should say probation officers for people who are released after serving the time for mm -hmm. the crimes that they were guilty of. But when you're an exoneree, you come out to nothing. You know, right. It's, it's actually paradoxical. You don't get any of those services because you weren't guilty in the first place. It's, it's ass backwards, actually. I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody. I mean, help them by all means. Yeah, everybody deserves But help it. us as well because now... I had never even talked on a cell phone or used a cell phone. I had never even seen it except for on TV. Oh, God. You know? And as soon as I walk out the county jail, Dr. Vizel hands me my first phone, and I'm like, um... the hell is this? How do I use this? You know? And my sister's calling me on it. I don't even know how to answer it. We don't know how to, to live in this side of the world. We've been trained to live by prison rules, prison structure, if you can call it that. We just need more programs and more awareness. I, I want to get stuff out there that's going to help people coming out and provide them with resources. Not just financial and educational, but emotional, mental health counseling. Mm -hmm. Very because so. reentry, after certainly 20 years in prison, proves to be extremely overwhelming. I've represented clients who have spent most of their life in prison and come out and don't know how to run a microwave or a CD player or a phone. Without that support, family or community such as Michelle has had, they literally either violate parole or reoffend in some way so they can go back to what they know, which is prison, where they feel safe, which is tragic. I've had, I'm like, why did you do that? Because I don't know how to live in this world, right. and I can't cope. So, Michelle, we have a tradition on wrongful conviction, as people who listen to the show already know, which is that I like to just turn the microphone over to you for any closing thoughts at all. What's on your mind? Uh, I, I'm... I'm determined. I'm going to change some things. I want to change a few laws, especially in Oklahoma. And I want to start a program that's going to go back into facilities and help prove the innocence of those that need to be home. And I want to get programs in the facilities that's going to teach individual skills to survive out here. I want to provide resources for them on what is available out here for them. I want to go into schools and to speak out and teach, to let kids know, hey, you don't have to commit anything. You don't have to be doing anything. You can still get caught up. And your life can be taken away from you in the blink of an eye, especially the way this is going out here in the world now. And 
I just want to help. Michelle, um, what can I say? You are amazing. And um, <laughs> it's been really a, a profound experience for me. Well, having you in my life and having you on Wrongful Conviction today. So I want to thank our two guests, our star, Michelle Murphy, <laughs> and her wonderful attorney, Shannon McMurray. So thank you both for being here, and I'm looking forward to the next phase of your life. Thank you, you for having us. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.